strength is the woman. No one ever gets the story right. Malakas and I lived in the hollow of a bamboo reed. We were lost, tangled up in a thicket of long, thin shoots when a bagyo, heavy with rain and wind, swept us away. The islands were just forming. There was nothing but sea and sky, and these bamboo stalks knocking into one another like tribal drums. During the monsoon, the bamboo circled us, swallowed us up whole. Malakas said he'd find a way to get us out, but all he did was whine. He was cramped. He was hungry. He had to relieve himself. He could not see for the dark. But we could hear the ocean beating on our bamboo pole. We could hear wind sweeping across the sky. We could hear the cries of a prehistoric bird caterwauling like it too was lost. Malakas wept, bathed me in his tears. We drifted in the current, spinning like a compass, never settling on a direction. We were always moving. I liked the dark. I liked the cool shade. I liked the lull of the tide. I found it soothing. And the silence that came when he slept was so peaceful. My body fit right next to his, and if he'd just learned to relax, we could have been like that together forever. My arms stretched high above our heads, fingers poking out of the end of the bamboo like leaves, wet when it rained, warm in the sun, salty. Most days, I closed my eyes and breathed. I used to meditate a lot back then, and if I listened very carefully, I could almost hear a flute-like melody swirling around us. Why aren't you freaking out, he wanted to know. Over what? It is what it is. Just chill. And then the bird flew past us, heard Malakas say, Anybody out there? Help. Hush, I told him. Breathe, I said. Relax. But he kept yelling like the world was on fire. And so the bird swooped down and kissed the tips of my fingers, cawed. We're stuck. We're hungry. We can't breathe. Quiet, I told Malakas. That's when the bird struck the reed slashed the bamboo right in half, and there we were, naked, brown, thin with a narrow bamboo. You are beautiful, said the bird, reaching its wing to touch me. I gave him the evil eye, and the bird, perched on the edge of the bamboo, lost his balance, just as the sea rose and swallowed him up. No, you stupid bird, Malaka said. She is strong. And that was the beginning of everything. Welcome to The Drunken Odyssey with John King, a podcast about the writing life. Tell us all news about a man whose mind and career has careened far and wide and upside down, whose computers are seared with crimes against grammar, whose typographical aggressions are legion, whose words flow into the very A man who actually owns a typewriter, and perhaps even a soul. And now, your host, John King.
welcome, my friends, to episode 613 of the World's Greatest Writing Podcast. On today's show, we have two interviews dating back to my new book fair. Chelsea Ellis interviews the short story writer Jamal Brinkley, and I interview M. Evelina Galan about her latest book, When the Hibiscus Falls. So I don't have comedy dates coming up, but on March 15th, the Ides, I will be appearing at the Kerouac Project of Orlando, the house where Jack Kerouac wrote the first draft of the Dombra Bums, in order to conduct a third installment of my personal reading series, In Buzo Veritas, which will be shortly followed by a book discussion of what might be my favorite novel, Kenneth Patchen's Memoirs of a Shy Pornographer. If you live in the city beautiful, mark March 15th on your calendar. Should be fun. So I'm going to introduce Jamel Brinkley's book Witness, as there is the habit at Might Be Book Fair to make the most of the time, and, and so reading a lengthy introduction, is sometimes foregone. In these 10 stories, each set in the changing landscapes of contemporary New York City, a range of characters, from children to grandmothers to ghosts, live through the responsibility of perceiving and the moral challenge of speaking up or taking action. Though they strive to connect, to remember, to stand up for, and to really see each other, they often fall short. And the structures they build around these ambitions and failures shape not only their own futures, but the legacies and prospects of their families and their city. In its portraits of families and friendships lost and found, the paradox of intimacy, the long shadow of grief, the meaning of home, witness enacts its own testimony. Let's get to the interview. And now, the interview of the day. Welcome. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. Could you tell me a little bit about when you started this collection, Witness, which I loved, by the way. I Thank really you. enjoyed it. When you started, did you start with a single story or did you start with the idea for the collection? I always start with the story itself. I try not to think too far beyond an individual story. And in fact, I get a little worried if an idea emerges too soon. And I did worry a little bit with this collection because the idea sort of emerged maybe three or four stories in. And I kind of saw that I was building a collection, which was not my experience with my first book at all. I didn't see that it was a collection until after the fact. I gathered a dozen stories and I saw that I could carve a collection out of those stories. So here I was just working story by story by story, but I saw the connecting threads sooner than I maybe wanted to. So which was the first story that you wrote? It's interesting. I think Witness, the title story was probably the first story that I wrote in terms of thinking of these stories as a collection. But there's actually a story in the collection that's older than Witness. It's actually over 10 years old now for oh, the wow. first draft of it. And I realized that it could fit later after some heavy revision. And that story is Arrows. Okay. Yeah. That's really interesting. I was going to ask about the timeline, and <laughs> it sounds like you said almost 10 years or over 10 years. That story, I think I first drafted in 2012. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
So were there stories that you ended up cutting that you had originally written for this collection? No, I didn't cut any stories. I did add a story at the end. So Arrows was added sort of in process, but very close to the end of things, I added the story that particular Sunday. Okay. Yeah. That's really interesting. So when you were deciding the order and organizing these stories, how did you go about deciding which story went first? Yeah, that's always an interesting and kind of fun process. I think I have my own idea, and then I kind of collaborate with my agent before we send the book out. We sort of reshuffle things a little. And then inevitably that process happens again with your editor. But I do think that the first story was always the first story. And I tend to think of first stories as the story that's going to kind of just through the sound of it, the story that's going to introduce readers to the particular world that you're about to enter. And so I like the sound of the first sentence of the first story, which feels very much, has a certain vernacular sound to it. It sounds like New York to me. It sounds like young New York to me. And I kind of want it just by the sound of that sentence for you to know, like, okay, this is where we are. These are the kinds of folks that we're going to spend time with. Right. And, and that's really funny because when I read books, I don't like to read anything about them first. I just want to discover it as I'm reading. And I read that first sentence and I said, oh, this is in New York. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I really, I loved that. So yeah. it's very effective. Yeah. Something that did stand out to me was how cohesive and comprehensively these stories defined witness. Oh. And so I just wanted to say that I really, I thought that they went together so well. And yeah, thank you. I mentioned earlier that I was a little worried about the idea of witness showing up so soon in the process. And I think my worry was that if I have an idea, what if the idea is too narrow? What if I start writing stories to the idea? What if all the stories start sounding the same or doing the same kind of work in different guises? But when I thought about it and read more around the idea of witness, I realized how capacious of an idea it was and that it could hold all kinds of stories, all kinds of angles and perspectives. And so I feel like my fear was unwarranted. Well, and the reason I was excited about this book was partly because I think witnessing things is important. And I think that that's something that as a society right now we're struggling with because the things we have to witness, especially for us, yeah. are hard. And a lot of us, or a lot of people, we say, oh, I can't actually watch that. I can't see it. We have to. It's our responsibility. That's and right. So I thought it was really important. And I loved that these stories sort of defined that. Yeah. Thank you. That's at the heart of the idea of being a witness to me. Etymologically, it's related to the idea of being a martyr. And so there's sometimes a deadly cause to being a witness. At the very least, it kind of shakes you out of your comfort. It shakes you out of your settled notions, your routines. You have to change something about yourself and your life to truly be a witness. It's very important, but it's also not without its challenges. Yeah, I definitely agree. So when you were writing these stories, were there any characters or did you start with character or plot typically? I usually start with character or place oh. and I never start with plot. Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Were there any characters that as you got to know them, because that's the, one of the most fun parts of writing characters, yeah. right? But as you got to know them that you didn't like them as much at first and they grew on you quite a bit. Oh, <laughs> yeah. That's an interesting question. I didn't like them at first. There are a couple of not so great characters in the stories. 
the narrator of Arrows was a tough guy, you know, <laughs> to spend a lot of time in his head, for instance. Or even the narrator of Witness, the title story. And I guess the process for me, it wasn't that they grew on me. Maybe they grew on me like a mold or something. <laughs> but I think I understood them. Even as I sort of saw their selfishness and their unwillingness to act on what they saw, their unwillingness to take that true step in being a witness, I think I understood it to a degree to get into the mind of those type of folks who are just sort of wrapped up in themselves or their own difficulties. And it makes them hard to show genuine care for other people and to act in a generous way. So yeah, characters like that, I think are a little tough. The narrator of Bartow Station is another one, you know, where it's like, oh, okay, what's going right. on with you, man? Right. Uh, and then you kind of get it a little. <laughs> Since you start with character or plays, yeah. typically, did you ever, as you were writing some of these characters, realize that they weren't who you thought they were in the beginning? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I think to some degree that kind of always happens. Oh, I want it to happen. Right. I want there to be some unpeeling of their character, some unraveling of their character. Other layers will show in the process of writing the story. And that's where a lot of the pleasure of writing stories lies, is that you don't really know them at the beginning. And I'm not sure you know them 100% by the end, but you know them better. And part of that getting to know them better usually entails some surprise. Yeah, that actually makes me think about how I think a lot of American literature, we focus in the beginning on the question and at the end on an answer. Yeah. And I actually, part of what I really liked about your collection is I think that you do start with questions and you get some answers, but you still end with questions. And I think that that is so important. It's something that I really appreciate in writing. Yeah. The way of thinking about short stories that I find most appealing is the idea that there's nothing anywhere in the story, even at the end, you can just detach and say, this is the answer, or this is the moral, or this is what it's about, this sentence, or this paragraph. I want the whole thing to be kind of stuck together, and I'm not really looking for answers, not in a large sense. Like you said, some answers may emerge, but I'm not looking to answer the questions that the stories are exploring. I'm just looking to explore the question. So what was the most challenging part of the process for you? Well, there were a few challenges, actually. The first thing I'll mention is that I was trying with a lot of the stories to sort of experiment with the first-person point of view. And first person has its appeals. Like a lot of people turn to it because voice is a thing you automatically get. And it feels like it might be the most intimate point of view. Although I might quibble with that. (laughs) But it's really super difficult to write in the first person. James Baldwin has this great quote in one of his interviews where he's like, why should I believe you just because of that bar blaring across that page, the eye over and over and over again? With a bunch of the stories in the collection, I kind of wanted to just crack open the first-person point of view to sort of work within its limits and see how I could tell interesting stories, whether the first-person character was passive or wanted to hide in various ways. How do you still tell a good story when the first person has such rigid limits? And that was tough. It was difficult. So that was one difficult thing that I would say. But honestly, just some of the subject matter was difficult to write into. Some of the topics or the subjects that emerge in the stories are rough. You're talking about loss of friendship, you're talking about gentrification, medical racism, 
police murders of black people, deed theft, people losing their homes, and grief, you know, people who are mourning. And some of the emotional territory was just difficult to write as well. Did you find that this particular collection was more difficult than some of the others that you've written for that reason? I think I'm always kind of in a certain (laughs) emotional range, actually. It's not as though my last book was all sparkles and sunshine. So I think I'm kind of used to just working in quote-unquote darker territory. But there was something about this collection that felt... I don't know if it was more difficult, actually. I shouldn't say that. Because I think if you had asked me right after I published my first book, I would have said, this is so difficult. (laughs) They're probably both difficult. But it's just sitting in just the difficulties of these characters and the way that intimacy can be so painful sometimes. I think they're probably equally difficult. So when you say intimacy can be difficult sometimes, what part for you makes it difficult? Is it putting yourself into the situation kind of emotionally and mentally to write it or when you go back and read it and you're in that space? Yeah, I think it's probably both because when you're writing, you're doing a lot of things. You're all over the place in the story, but as you put yourself in the place of the characters themselves, and even if I'm writing in first person, I try to put myself in the place of all the characters in a particular story. I try to be on the side of every character, so to speak. What you realize is intimacy entails so much vulnerability. So as much as intimacy can be a space of comfort and care, you can turn to, to be your just most natural self, it also involves being really vulnerable. And I think what you have with some of my characters is kind of an unwillingness to be vulnerable or they're reluctant to be vulnerable. Like I'm thinking of Bartow Station and the narrator of that story again and how he's just so closed off, like so just rigidly armored in his self and how the story really tries to pick at that and finally it just floods out but when it floods out it's not necessarily a great thing. Right. So things like that is what I mean. Intimacy, we think of it as one of the things everyone absolutely wants in life and yes we do but it can also come at a cost. You're not protected. You're completely exposed to your intimates, the other people that you're close to. Right. And it's really interesting, this idea that when that vulnerability comes out, I know that culturally, especially for certain groups of people, definitely where I come from, part of the fear of being vulnerable is you don't want it to be something that's offensive or unpalatable to other people. Yeah. And, but that's the title of your collection is Witness. Yeah. We need to see that. Yeah. I think that that's part of another reason why this collection is so important because we do need to see that even if it's not pretty. Yeah. And yeah, I thought that's really important. Yeah, I think it is. We all kind of get dressed up every day to a certain degree. We wake up and we sort of put on our best face and we armor ourselves in our clothing and we go to our jobs or whatever we do, go to school, just out into the world. You're putting up a protected version of yourself, not your actual self. Of course, your actual self leaks through and people get glimpses of it, but the full spectacle of yourself (laughs) is kind of covered up and it can be hard to see. I think that's why something like like marriage is so hard sometimes. You're marrying someone that you think you know really well, then over the course of your marriage, you get to know them really well. And, you know, it may not be the person that you thought they were. And people change, too. So... Just in terms of the idea of witnessing, I think it's about seeing the beauty and the ugliness, seeing both the full spectrum of our experience here on this planet, our relationships, ourselves, each other. So 
you currently teach at the Iowa Writers Workshop. I do. So what do you specialize in teaching? Yeah, so our faculty at the Writers Workshop, we have a fiction track and a poetry track. So I'm part of the fiction faculty. I teach a workshop every semester, which is open to anything, any kind of student work. Typically it's short stories, but people submit excerpts of novels. We have a dedicated novel workshop for people who want to submit entire novels. <laughs> and so I'm kind of open to anything. Okay. Yeah, I've read speculative work in my workshop, realist work, all kinds of stuff in terms of genre. Then I also teach a seminar, which could be sort of my whims, like whatever I'm interested in teaching on a given semester. For instance, I'm teaching a seminar this semester about endings mm. of stories, endings of novels, endings of plays, novellas. Just thinking about what makes a good ending. But next semester, I'll teach something entirely different. Right. And how does teaching influence your writing and your writing process? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Well, one thing it does for me personally is that it takes away from my writing time. (laughs) I get pretty laser focused when I'm teaching. And so I put a lot into my teaching. I put a lot of thought into my classes, into the work of my students. So I don't always have the time that I would like to have to work on my own stuff. So that's one thing it absolutely does, and I would be dishonest if I didn't acknowledge that. But I guess I can also say I think that I feel like I learn so much all the time from my students, from their work, from the things that they're trying and often achieving, from the questions that they ask from the books that I assign in seminar, from material that their work prompts me to reread and I'll rediscover something. So I feel like I'm learning a ton just from teaching, which absolutely has to feed into my writing. I think it does. Even as it takes away writing time, I feel like (laughs) it feeds my writing, I don't want to say knowledge, but something along those lines. And I guess the, the last thing I would say is one thing that I think is good but also a challenge is when I do come back to the page, I really have to try to put my teaching, editing self away <laughs> right. in order to get back to that raw place of creation, right. especially if I'm working on a first draft, which can be tough sometimes in the beginning. Like if I've just done teaching a semester, it can be hard for me just to immediately go back to the page. Like I need a buffer. I need to let that teaching energy right. <laughs> drain out of the tub, so to speak. And then I can kind of go back to it. But I do love the work and I feel like, I don't know if I'm a better writer because of it. I'm a better thinker about writing because of my teaching. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So I wonder, because I know that they tell you if a student is having trouble with something, you tell them to teach it to somebody else and Mm -hmm. it helps them change Mm -hmm. their process of thought Mm -hmm. around that topic. Mm -hmm. And I guess I would think that teaching writing, you're just continually changing your perspective and expanding your perspective on things. Mm -hmm. So have you seen a difference in your style from when you first began through now that you might attribute to that or maybe attribute to something else? Just My writing style or my teaching style? Your writing style. My writing style. That's interesting. I don't know if I have. If I have, then maybe it shows up when I'm trying to revise my own work. But I think when I'm writing a first draft, and I tell my students this all the time, any quote-unquote craft stuff that we talk about in class, do your best to forget all about it when you're in front of the blank page. Because right. it's so easy to have the editor or the teacher looking over your shoulder. It's so easy to think that you're violating some quote-unquote rule as soon as you put down a sentence. Right. And I always tell them there are no rules. What we're talking about are just ideas and suggestions that are useful when they're useful 
and not useful when they're not. So to me, we're just talking about ideas. We're talking about the implications of the choices you make in your writing. And I think maybe in my own work, I can see that a bit more clearly when I'm revising my own work. But again, when I'm writing a first draft, I'm just someone who has never written a word before, you know? (laughs) And I like that feeling of, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm lost. I'm just going on instinct. I think the most energized work comes from that feeling. Not I know it all or I know the rules now. Right. For me, I think that it's very similar to that feeling of discovery as I'm writing it. And that's always an amazing feeling. Yeah. I always tell people that I am a discovery writer in that sense. I start a story with something very small. I mentioned a character or a suggestion of a character or a voice or a place. And I try to build a whole story around something as flimsy as that. And sometimes that feels like an irrational act of faith. But it's also really exciting to know that you can do it. You can start with a seed that's so thin. You can see through the thing. It's this translucent little flimsy thing. And you can build a story that holds together and has these all these webs of connection and has its own integrity. And to see that happen feels like a little miracle every mm-hmm. time. So I love that process of building and discovering from something very small. And so the revision process, like you said, it's also a discovery process, yeah. right? Because you write and then you put it aside for a bit. And yeah. You're looking at it again, and you're discovering where and what to keep and remove and how it works in in the greater scheme of things. And do you have a favorite part of the process or even a part that you maybe don't love as much as the rest of it? Yeah, it's very difficult and sometimes very painful, but I think there are a few different areas I, I take pleasure in. As arduous as that process of discovery and building that I was just talking about can be, there is pleasure in it. When you feel like you've taken a firm step forward, you're like, oh yeah, that, I'm on the right track. That feels really good. As a discovery writer, I like to discover my endings. I don't like to know them ahead of time. And so the feeling of being two pages away or a page away or even a paragraph or a sentence away and it all of a sudden clicks in your mind, that I know how this is gonna end. That's really pleasurable. And then the last thing I would say is that with when I'm revising, but you put the thing away, like you said, and then you look at it and you're deciding what's going to go and what's going to stay. But what I find really preferable about revision and sometimes terrifying is that you're also kind of learning something more about your own mind because your writing mind is bigger than your everyday practical mind. And so you're putting things down in a first draft that are kind of coming from all these unconscious zones of your brain. And you may not even know why it's there at first, but with the passage of time, you look at your words again, you're like, where did that come from? And sometimes it's like, oh my God, no, I have to get rid of that. (laughs) But other times it's like, oh, I see what I was thinking. I didn't know I was thinking this, or I didn't know that this language was in my head, but it really is. And it's saying something back to me. So it feels like your own mind is talking to you indirectly through the page. And that process can be really pleasurable as well. You mentioned endings and the excitement of knowing your clothes and figuring out and discovering the ending. Have you ever written an ending and when you go back later to revise it, you realize it ended a little bit before? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That happens all the time, that you can write past your own ending. Right. Yeah, that happens a lot. Sometimes you're afraid to approach the ending because there's something about it that is 
terrifying. So you kind of avoid it and you shy away from it. So you write short of your ending, you write past your ending. Most often though, I think I kind of land on the quote unquote ending, Mm -hmm. but it's still wrong because something in another part of the story is wrong. Right. And one thing we talk about in my endings seminar and in my workshops actually is that very often the problem with an ending is somewhere before the ending. Something got dropped, some thread wasn't connected, some character wasn't developed, some image wasn't emphasized strong enough. Because the ending again is organically connected to the rest of the story. It's the result of the story. And so you can have all the language you need in an ending it'll still fall flat. But if you tinker around in the middle or in the beginning, all of a sudden the ending starts to light up. And it's really remarkable to see that happen. Right. Yeah, I agree. So I wanted to ask about other authors, maybe classical authors or current authors that you have taken inspiration from or enjoy their work. Yeah. Well, in terms of witness, I can talk about a few. James Baldwin is the presiding spirit of the book, very important to the book. And other authors who were influential for that book in particular include Gina Berrio, who's an underappreciated short story writer, William Trevor, absolutely. There's a writer named Richard Curry, who's really important to the book. Those are a handful of folks that I would mention off the top of my head. And then some other writers that are really important to me include Edward P. Jones, super important. Ian Lee um, is really important to me as a writer. Charles D'Ambrosio is really influential contemporary writer. And someone I've been kind of obsessed with for the past couple years is the writer Shirley Hazard, who does have short stories, but also her great novel, The Transit of Venus, just takes the top of my head off every time I read it. I love that. So I have to say, I read it twice, and the first time I read through, I kind of got this sense that it felt like a very modern version and a short story version of Invisible Man by Ellison. I got that kind of feeling from it. They are very intimate stories. Yeah. So I just wanted to... Yeah, that's really high praise. You know, I have to say, (laughs) just, just anecdotally... Invisible Man was the first literary book I became obsessed with as a kid. I was a teenager and... I was the same, yeah. Sleeping on a bunk bed. And I was, at this point, my brother kept changing which one of us would sleep on the bottom or top bunk. At this point, I was sleeping on the top bunk. And I was reading Invisible Man and I got to the end and I just immediately turned back to the beginning of it and started rereading it again. And I never had that experience with the book. I've always been a huge, passionate reader. But that book made me read it over and over again. So much so that my, I remember my mom coming in one day and being like, are you still reading that book? And I was like, I'm my third reader something and I was like I can't get out of this book it was hugely influential to me so that's high praise to mention Allison I'm so glad thank you yeah I had a similar experience with it yeah it was I went to schools that did not really teach literature that was anything other than standard American at the time Uh or British or things like that and so I was so excited to read something that was more representative of me. And then it was mind-blowing. It's an ambitious book that fulfills its ambitions. It's insane what he does in that book. Right from the beginning, he's laying out all this territory, and you can he's telling you he has claim to all these traditions. Jazz, Louis Armstrong, Dante, Inferno. I'm just going to be underground. I'm going to be smoking a reefer. Like, all all kinds of crazy stuff is going on. You're like, you can do this? And it feels so freeing, but and so intelligently done. 
Right. You know, so it's uh, that book is a marvel. I agree, but I think that your collection is too. Oh, and thank like you. I said, I definitely got that sense as I was reading it the entire time. So Thank you. Thank you so much. The Kerouac Project of Orlando is proud to announce the reopening of its writer's residency after a one-year hiatus. The number of residencies has expanded from four to six, taking place in the house where Jack Kerouac wrote the first draft of the Dharma Bums in the College Park neighborhood of Orlando, Florida. The submission period runs until April 14th of this year. For more information about how to apply, please visit the website kerouacproject.org or see this week's show notes for details. My guest is M. Evelina Galang, who is the author of the new collection, When the Hibiscus Falls, which explores through realism and myth, Filipino and Filipino-American women and their relationship to their culture, each other, including ghosts. Mm-hmm. Congrats on the new book. Thank you so much. So one of the things I love is how you write the myths as if they're a fantasy story, which is to say, and let me be clear, there needs to be an explanation to that. Not like, oh, here's the science of magic or anything like that, but instead there's just an embrace of the logic of the mythic storytelling. And while you are using literary skill to make it seem more natural and just, yes, that is the way the world works Yeah. in this world, there's just the assumption of, this is valid. I don't know if this is good or not, but this is an important way of engaging with the world. And then you have very, you know, realistic stories that are maybe just as dark <laughs> and just as fraught. And right. yet I think the juxtaposition of both of those modes in kind of the same that fills me with joy. Thank you. I like to fill my readers with joy. <laughs> but yeah, I think that the idea for me was that in some ways, this way of thinking of the world is a natural way of thinking of the world. And you don't make a big deal of it. You don't say this is the science of it. This is the culture of it. Let's stop the narrative and give little explanations. My characters just live with it. And that makes it a lot of fun for me. Yeah. This is, I'm sure, nothing you ever expected to talk about today, but Stephen King's Carrie, which is about telekinesis. And throughout that entire book, as a narrator, he's introducing, here's story articles about wondering what the hell happened in that town on that night. I think for 1973 or whenever that came out, it was the way you probably needed to write a horror book like that. Just <laughs> Are you saying I've written a horror story? I, I, no, <laughs> no, it's saying, okay, the magic of this world. I don't exactly expect the audience to go with it. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that. And I think that's maybe his best book. There is something great also about the opposite approach of, no, don't apologize. Don't keep fussing. Right, absolutely. No, <laughs> with yeah. With the structure or with the reception. The reader's either in or the reader's not in. That's right. And also, I think in the way I've chosen to tell these stories and really in all my work, I'm Filipino-American, right? So I'm Filipino and I'm American. I'm living in the United States. And so there are these different elements of culture that dominant culture might not be aware of. And also there's Tagalog. There's a lot of Tagalog in this book, and as well as Kapampangan and some Spanish. And I think that I grew up having to explain language. That was mm-hmm. the expectation in school. That was the expectation of my peers and workshop when I was in graduate school. And what I have learned as I have grown older is I don't have to apologize for anything. <laughs> <laughs> and it is not my job to give lessons on culture and history and language. And my characters are going to speak the way they're going to speak, and they're going to live in the world the way they're going to live in the world. And right, you can come on board, and you can witness that, and you can be a part of it, and you can see an intimate side of a particular story through these characters, or you can be resistant and 
keep making the demands that some traditional stories have asked us to give. Yeah, I'm a white middle-aged writer. And so in my experience, I think for me, there's like a hunger for something I'm not. Oh, yeah. Is that right? So also, I mean, I have a training as an academic, as a scholar. And so it's like, okay, yeah, if I could read Ulysses, then a book that is truly multicultural, that's just normal literature. And part of the pleasure actually is not all of it feeling completely familiar all the time from the outset, like it's supposed to be nerf covered. It's not a box built for me, but it is a box in which I am invited. Exactly. That's a beautiful way to think about it. Yes, absolutely. A box that you're invited into. And that's sort of the way I I see these stories, the way these stories are working with one another. In some ways, I was thinking about my nieces who are coming up now and also growing up in a mostly white neighborhood, school, whatnot. They're looking for their ancestry and they're looking for ways to hold on to culture. When I wrote these stories, I wasn't even thinking about these stories as one book. I was writing stories in between some of my other projects. When this book came together, I read to see what do they have in common? What are my obsessions? You know, those kinds of things. And I found that this is it. It's about the women. It's like the strength of the women. And it's about legacy. And it's about the way the dead are always with us. And either guiding us or talking to us or trying to get through to us or eventually being the storytellers of the story. Somehow I found in this collection that there are very different ways that these spirits, these multos, are with us. But they're not ghosts like boo ghosts. They're like family members. They're like ancestors. Yeah. Well, in the final story, Isla de la... Yeah, Isla of the Babylon. Island of the Babylon, yeah. There's a character who is like, all right, what do I do? And there's a character like, I've been trying to tell you, listen. I've been talking to you this whole time. (laughs) Yeah, and I like to think, I like to think that the world is like that. What's really interesting about, so the book came out this past June, and my mom, who's 93, was super excited about it. She kept saying to me, you know, when's the book coming out? And had read versions of these stories, and then finally... The book came out in June, and she was at our book signing in August in in Milwaukee and celebrated with us and took everyone out to eat. And then she passed away in October. And I was like, oh, my God, this whole book season was about somehow this book coming into reality for me. I think I wrote, when the hibiscus falls, that phrase was theoretical for me in so many ways. Now she's gone. It's been like a little over 40 days. And I'm thinking she was planning this to be the way it is. (laughs) That in some ways, it, it makes her death so much more connected to my life, my spiritual and my artistic life and my desire to tell these stories that are connected to our culture that she and my father brought with them from the Philippines so I can share them with our family. So legacy lives on. It's really quite beautiful. Well, I'm sorry for your loss, but also I can appreciate how wonderful that timing is, that the fact of it is inevitable. And so that She looked forward to this event and got to witness it. Yeah. Seems like it's pretty special. It was really special. Yeah, in some ways, in some ways, I think, I don't know if she knew something that I didn't know or if she she felt things, but me also, when I saw her in August for the very first time ever, I always knew she loved me and I always knew she was proud of me. But one of the things that she said as I was leaving her in August was she was really proud of this book and that she was really proud of the work I was doing and that I'd surpassed anything that she could have ever dreamed of. So to me, it was like, wow, mom, don't talk like that. (laughs) What are you saying? You don't ever talk like that, you know? But there she was, and maybe she knew something I didn't know. That this was an okay time for some closure. Even though on my shelf, I've got David Foster Wallace's final novel, Mm -hmm. the one that was published posthumously, and it's like, 
I'm okay not reading it because I still want there to be that one book there. Right, right. <laughs> like, right. oh, there's just one more novel by him waiting to come out. And it's like, well, technically it came out, but I'm going to need to hold on to it for a while. Wow. I wonder if you're going to read that. I would say a 50-50 chance I go out before I, oh I get to reading it. <laughs> wow. Okay. That's a way of thinking. But also part of my reading life so much these days is dictated by who I get to talk to. Mm-hmm. And he took himself out, so I'm not talking to him. <laughs> so there. Or at least not yeah. literally yeah. talking to him. But like people we've lost, mm-hmm. we've lost them, but we haven't. That's right. And I think a lot of my writing career is me in conversation with not just him, but so many people. But he's just one of those people who like, oh, you know, that thing that you're so into, there's actually fun ways to do that. And you can actually try and talk to people instead of just trying to reinvent modernism that no one wants to read. Right. (laughs) And to go back to the point of cultural literacy with multicultural texts. Also, it's kind of like reading subtitles. It's like the first time someone does it, if the movie's any good 20 minutes later, you forget that there was a learning curve, that part of the care that you take as a storyteller is, all right, things do recur so that once you learn something, you kind of build. You build on that. And also, I always say to my students that the first chapter, the first story always teaches us how to read the book. And even with this little... If the book is good. Oh, okay. In parentheses, if the book is good. But, you know, the idea is that we get to teach our readers how to read the book, and then you can do anything you want. When you think about it that way, you establish the rules of the world early on, and then the sky's the limit. I mean, really, you can... This is what you're in for. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah, we could go in or we could go out, but this book is going in. Hopefully. (laughs) Yeah. America's still beautiful. I was kind of charmed by that and how heartbreaking and frustrating. And also, I feel like the Trump presidency was just an open wound for... So many of us. All my friends. Yeah. (laughs) And millions of people who are not my friends. And writing about the immigrant experience and navigating the, let's say, complexities and confusions of American media and American politics and trying to just figure out what are our values and what does it mean for us as Americans and as people who have emigrated to America? What is all this? How does all this work out? And I've seen cognitive dissonance at work where I'm like, all right, I don't think you would be supporting this if you understood understood what was going on. Where this ends. But what this story did for me was allowed me to feel a lot more empathy for, okay, but what is it like inside that experience of trying to figure out, okay, who do you trust? Who do you not trust? And the sacrifices to come here, to live here, to build a life here, to try and make the most of the American dream, which is just more opportunity for upward mobility and trying to build a successful family. Fortune isn't the right word, but equity. Let's go with equity. Equity, that sounds good. (laughs) Right, just things that you can pass down and building family equity and just seeing what that's like kind of from the inside without a ton of judgment. And also I just felt like it's told through a story. It's not homework. It's not an essay, but I felt like it allowed me to slow down and just appreciate how confusing that was. Right. Confusing. Or could be. Yeah. And especially even within a family, right? Yes. Clearly Faustina really left to her own devices. She might have gone in a completely different direction than her vote did, not to give the story away. But then with her granddaughter there, and that's a voice of this new generation, right? And then her husband and his own misunderstandings or journey from being the boy he was in the Philippines and the radical he was to trying to assimilate and achieve everything and then stay safe. 
And so that colors for him, that colors and I think establishes his voting record, which is a surprise to everyone, really. And I think that that family is a family that lives in many households, especially in the Filipino-American community. That family where there is a misunderstanding, because this grandmother and granddaughter come back later on in the book, and you can see that their understanding of politics and the American, quote, dream is so different from one another, and yet there's so much love between them. And ultimately, their support for one another is... Yeah. I want to say more important, it's the bigger takeaway. Sure. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's how they're able to exist or to kind of make it through these really weird and obnoxious times, you know, (laughs) is that ultimately they realize this line that's so weird that I I saw a line in this book, which is family is family. I think it's when the hibiscus falls, because the other day, a couple of months ago, I ran into a paper that someone had written or a review of her wild American self and quoted something from that first book that was 1996 and there it was family is family so apparently that's something that I think about all the time that family is family and so yes all these incongruent ways of thinking which I think I can even see manifesting now with the politics of the Middle Eastern war it's a lot it's confusing and everybody wants to do the right thing and it's not always the same there's no single right thing that's right and you're all living under the same roof yeah. I think that's really interesting and in some ways horrific and in some ways I think it's good that we're challenging one another to think of what is the right way. I don't have an answer to that. <laughs> well, not to delve too deep into the politics, but I remember something Janine Garofalo said during George W. Bush's second run for president, which is anyone who votes for him now I see as a character flaw. <laughs> <laughs> Not knowing what a Bush presidency would look like exactly, and you voted for him because you liked him or you liked his optimism, you believed in compassionate conservatism, whatever he thought that may have meant. Right. But after three and a half years, if you go, if you vote for that, saying yes, she's like, okay, that's against your character at that point. Anyone who votes for Trump now, I'm like, yeah, there's so much about that I don't understand. Well, there are the people who are just, they like him. I guess I get it. There are the people who talk, who think they have ideas, who are like, no, he's a... And I'm like, okay, that's the universe where I'm like, I can't imagine a bridge to get to where you are. I just like him. He hates the people I hate, or he makes me feel excited to be who I am. I'm like, gross, but I kind of get it. But I guess one of the things that I think that I'm asking in the stories is I don't understand how people are not seeing that really what's at play, what's at stake is this notion of democracy and the way, at least for my parents and other immigrants who came and eventually became U.S. citizens, this idea that this was supposed to be the place to go. This is that we're a nation of immigrants and this is supposed to be our next chance. And so, and everyone actually at some point was an immigrant. So I think that's one of the questions I'm asking is, do we not see what's really at stake? But the imaginative process of just imagining, okay, how does an immigrant vote for Trump thinking he likes them mm-hmm. and that it's going to be good for them? And The Apprentice is well, largely that's... responsible for that and not him campaigning and stumping. He already had a, this off-the-rack persona, like a cheap suit. So can you talk about the process of writing this and over how many years the stories were composed? Right. So I think that... And how long have you been thinking about these themes? I think that I've been thinking. Well, let's see. (laughs) I think that I wrote them. I know that I wrote them maybe over 10 years or so. The oldest story is really actually a story that I had written 
back in the day, I want to say Deflowering the Sampaguita, which is a really old piece. I was writing them, as you know, I had worked on Lola's House, mm-hmm. Filipino Women Living with War, for about 18 years. Thank you. 18 years of research and going back and forth to the Philippines and being with the women and having them just occupy every mind, spirit, heart, body, illness, everything with me. And then I had a couple novels that I was also working on. So in between all of that, I would write these stories as a break, as a way of just having fun, just imagining something different than what I was. finishing something short. Mm-hmm. Let's just do something <laughs> short. Yep. Or people would say to me, oh, I've got a short story collection coming out, an anthology coming out, could you contribute? And I would say, oh man, I'm working on, for example, I think at one point I was working on one tribe. And so I said, but I want to contribute. So I would write these things that I call satellite stories. They're from the minor character's perspective, maybe a character who doesn't even show up in the larger project, but who might contribute to the life of another protagonist, right? So for example, I was working on one tribe, I think, or towards the end of it. And someone asked me, so I wrote this story, Drowning, which is from the perspective of of this character who is not even in the novel, but she's a younger sister of one of the girls who gets on the Balikbayan box and out into the sea. At the end of the novel, we don't know if the girls survive or not, but in this story, I imagine that they don't survive in drowning. So there are a couple stories that are like that. I think there's one from Angel de la Luna in The Fifth Glorious Mystery. And then there's even this story, this fun I had with Agostina, who is the main character of her wild American self 25 years later as a grown woman coming back as a well-known photographer. So some of it, I was just having fun or whatever. Didn't think that they were stories that were necessarily connected to one another. I just thought I was just writing. But there is this thing, I truly believe, that we as writers, as artists, have these obsessions that we are unaware of. And for me, that's what I've discovered upon bringing these stories together under one roof. It's like, oh, wow, I've got a couple of things that I keep thinking about here. And one of them, and I think you did a great job of summarizing what they were early on, but this idea of the women and the culture, but really the strength of the women. Historically, with the Babaylan, women were oftentimes the leaders in the community. This is pre-colonial times. And there was much equity between gender, men, women, and even those who are in between or who do not identify purely as women or purely as men. There was equity there. And somehow with colonization, that got lost. So in the back of my mind, there's this interest in that. Also in the back of my mind, there's this practice of community, which I thought was just maybe a Western notion of community, always wanting to be with my community. There's different ways I define that. But also I grew up in this household where my parents, who were immigrants, were very much community leaders. And so I was very used to them talking. I talked about it the other day, how I could hear them at night discussing, debating. Actually, it was kind of exciting, debating over like what's going on in the Philippines or what's going on in the United States for some of the Filipinos. And then they would get an idea of how to address the situation. And then everybody was at our house. My mother was feeding people. There's a lot of talking. There was a lot of eating. And there was even mahjong and, and poker playing. But in the end, they were getting together to do something. And it was something I grew up with. And I thought, that's just... That's because that's, that's normal. Yeah. And that's just who they are. As I've been writing and researching and revising, I come to find out, oh, wow, there's this thing in the Filipino culture, in indigenous Filipino culture called Kapwa, K-A-P-W-A, Kapwa, which is Filipino selfhood, which is this idea that we see ourselves and the other and we support one another. So this idea of community, of helping and also feeding people. <laughs> Filipinos like to feed one another. It's like one of our greatest things we do. Not to be underestimated. 
ever. Right. The the joys of communal eating. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I just thought it was something that we did in our family. That's what we did. But I find out, oh, it's very much a a cultural practice from before the Spaniards. And it's also invasive in all the stories, this idea of coming together, of supporting one another, of eating with one another, of, as I said, I'm dealing with grief right now. I've been making every single recipe my mother's ever cooked, ever taught me to cook, right, as a way of working through the grief. So I think these obsessions I was finding in these stories after the stories were written and not before that. And when the, they came together, I was like, oh, wow, I have enough. Actually, there are some stories that are not in here. They're already 17. I mean, can you imagine? And so when I started to put them together, one of the things a dear friend of mine, Edwige Danticat, said when she read an early draft, Evelina, what is the ribbon that ties all these stories together? And I thought about it. And I think that the answer to that is in the title story. It's really the intergeneration and the legacy, the ancestry, the sisterhood. Well, over the last few years, I've written more than one elegy. The last one I titled No More Fucking Elegies, because <laughs> <laughs> if I could please not, and these are not poems I chose to write, the poems arrived. Right. You're doing this. I'm sorry. I know that. But one of the things I'm trying to do is learn how to celebrate these friendships and the joys of my community, the people who are special to me. And so I think this book helped me abide that just a little bit better. Oh, yeah. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Well, that is the show for this week. Don't forget to check out thedrunkenodyssey.com for great written content. If you want to write in, the email is thedrunkenodyssey at gmail.com. All right, everybody. Until next time, put your ass in the chair, keep attacking those keys, and don't swallow the worm. A while back, John King endowed the Museum of Schlock and tasked me, Jeff Schuster, with curating the bugger. Each week, I curate one more entry into this proud genre of film. I think. Truth is, I'm really not sure what schlock is, but my writing about it is sublime. Read it every Friday at thedrunkenodyssey.com. Thank you for listening to The Drunken Odyssey with John King a podcast about the writing life. This is your announcer, Lauren Butler.